privilege today to introduce one of my favorite people, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. The Riddles have been a tremendous blessing to our community, and, uh, and I mean all four of them. And, and we're thankful for what you guys have done here. You know, the truth is, a wise man told me years ago, it wasn't me, it was somebody else, it, that, that God sometimes calls us, th- calls us through a place and then sometimes to a place. And we go at different stops along the way, and he prepares us for the next stage of life. And, and you guys have done admirably here. You've blessed so many lives, and we're thankful for the gift of your time that God has given us. And so Dr. Riddle and I spoke. He agreed to come up and share with us today. And so we will, without further ado, invite him to the podium. You guys are going to be blessed this morning. Let's give him a big hand as he comes. The title of the message this morning is A Summer to Remember. A Summer to Remember. Now that the summer months have kicked off and folks are graduating and completing school and parents are either excited or thinking about what they're going to do with their youngsters over the summer, it's time we take vacations. It's time where we make work toward making fond memories. We might think about how we're going to relax and how we're going to reconnect with family and loved ones. How we're going to make, indeed, the summer memorable. But one of the things that we may not be thinking about is what type of spiritual activity we might be able to engage in during the summer to help in our spiritual journey with the Lord. How we, indeed, can make the summer memorable from God's perspective. And so today we're going to look, out of, we're going to look at a passage out of Second Chronicles chapter 7. Before we jump into that passage, we're going to take this moment and bow our heads and pray. Gracious Lord, again, it is truly a privilege to gather with those of like faith. What a joy we have. What an opportunity. What a privilege. We ask Jesus that you will now quicken our minds and our spirits. May the presence of your Holy Spirit be very profound here this morning. Guy in our thinking guiding our motives, guiding our thoughts. Now take this fragile vessel of clay and dust. May the words that you would have your people hear be uttered today. May the Spirit of God speak to them, guide them, and strengthen them. Bless us today as we seek your face. May, Lord Jesus, we be quick to hear the word of God and apply it to our lives. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 11 through 16, six verses inclusively. We're going to spend most of our time on one verse, but we're going to look at all of them as we begin. A little background on Second Chronicles. Solomon was the son of David. David had wanted to build the temple of God. David was a king in the nation of Israel before it was split between the northern and southern kingdoms. And as David was king... He had so much blood on his hands, God could not have David fulfill and build the temple. He was a man of war. He was a man of war. And he was a man that had, he had the, 
The scripture says he had a, a passion for the heart of God, but nevertheless, he had quite a bit of baggage. One of the outcomes was some of his baggage was the birth of his son Solomon. But God didn't hold that against Solomon. Solomon was raised and became known as one of the wisest men that ever walked the planet. But Solomon was charged by God to build the temple of God. And he would do that, and we read about that account in 2 Chronicles. And as the temple was completed, in all of its beauty and all of its amazingness, the, the, the detail that went in to the crafting of that temple, the detail in which those craftsmen apply to where God would place his presence, we now read as God takes us through and speaks now to Solomon, speaks about how God would want his temple viewed and what's going to come upon the people. Because as we know today, the temple isn't a place made of hands. It's a place made without hands. As a child of God, you are the temple of God. In all of its dormant, in all of its beauty. And these are the words he would have us hear. Thus Solomon finished the house of God in the king's palace. And successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in this palace. I'm going to pause just for a moment. This is a side note, but it's a very important note. It is very critical that we realize that as Solomon built the temple, he would finish the temple first, and then he would build his palace. Again, he would finish the temple first, and then he would build his palace. Oftentimes in our own lives, We find ourselves preoccupied with building our palaces before we think about what we're doing in the kingdom of God, what we're building, what type of temple is God residing today as a believer. I'm going to take just a small hiatus here. When we think about a human's life, and I would like to think in some capacity that I've spent a lot of my life observing how humanity lives and how we behave. And there's something I've found as a common thread ever since I was a young person. We spend the first 60 years of our life working so diligently on building our palaces. And then about, about the age 60, we become poignantly aware of our mortality. Become aware of the end is coming. I have far more years behind me than I have ahead of me. And then we begin very aggressively working on perhaps the temple of God and how it ought to be. Solomon teaches us the right order. Work on the temple first, then work on the palace. Very important lesson to learn. Very important lesson. Continuing on into verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Again, we'll pause. So here's the temple built in the order. Temple, then palace. In the temple, the temple was set aside. You and I, as believers, the temple of God. God would set aside that temple as a place for sacrifice. A place where God would set things apart, where things would be given up. A place where things would be given away. That's what sacrifice is. It's a place where God carves out more of himself 
and less of the other. Moving forward, verse 13. The word if here, in trueness, in the Hebrew, is a temporal word, better translated as when. And you're welcome to write that in your own, on your own Bibles. You're not doing anything wrong there. The notion here is a temporal idea. That is, that this will come to pass. It's not a conditional idea. It is a temporal. It's going to happen. So, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, and when I command the locusts to devour the land, and when I send pestilence among my people, continuing on, and when my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Solomon moves forward after building the temple and declares as God speaks through him, speaks now to him in that vision, in that dream, and declares to him what is about to come or what will come to pass. That God's people who are called by his name, those people will endure suffering. They will endure hardships. They will endure destructive times. They will happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But when those events transpire, God gives us a very specific formula on how we are to behave. And we're going to look at those four steps this morning. Verse 14 again. And when my people who are called by my name first do what? Humble themselves. Humility is a very interesting word. Humility is it's the antithesis of pride. What is what caused Satan to fall? Pride. Humility was not part of Satan's life when he was known as Lucifer. In all of his beauty, in all of his glory, pride got in the way. I was raised in south central Pennsylvania. In that area, we had a tremendous amount of conservative believers. Many Amish, many Mennonites, many Quakers. Nothing wrong with any of those faith systems. It's not what I'm speaking about. But what they did is they took a very intentional position on showing their humility. But that's the challenge with humility. If I try to act humble, in fact, I become prideful because I'm trying to draw attention to self in that I'm going without. I'm, I'm rebuking all forms of materialism. I'm, I'm doing away with all things that would, that would draw attention to myself. Yet, in fact, I'm drawing attention to myself because that is how I'm comparing myself to others. Look at how I'm suffering. I am humble. You are not. You see how that gets turned? Pride has much more to do about the self-focus and humility. What it all means is simply this. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less of the time. Again, I'll repeat that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. As a child of God, you are made in the image of God in that you are priceless, you are precious. There is no value placed upon you. God gave everything for you. 
And that makes you beautiful and priceless. But humility is us not thinking of ourselves much of the time. It's us thinking about others. And so the journey to deliverance, in a sense, begins with humility. It begins with me looking toward the outside, looking toward how am I reacting with the world around me, not what I want, what I can get. The second step is prayer. Prayer in this context speaks much more about confession. When I humble myself, I'm not worried about trying to look proper. I'm not worried about trying to make sure that other people think wonderful things of me. I'm worried about how is it that I'm reacting to the world around me? Am I effective? Am I not? And when I begin to confess where it is like I come up short, that is what God is after. When we look at our own spiritual walk with the Lord, there are matters in our lives that become relatively stubborn. I would describe those more than anything else as those stubborn sins. There are things that don't disturb us very much. There are some sins that folks deal with that we really don't have a problem with. They, they, don't, they don't tempt us. They won't even come on our radar. But there is normally one or two sins in our life that for whatever reason, they seem to keep cropping up at the most uneventful times. When we're struggling, when it seems like we're going through difficulties, when hardship comes our way, there it is, that stubborn sin. And they have a way of making us feel guilty, making us feel somehow that we are inadequate, they steal the joy from us. When we look at Scripture, we'll see that so many men of God and people of God had those same issues. I'm going to bring up one right now that many times folks don't think about. The rich young ruler. Jesus looked at that rich young ruler as Yushua came to approach him. And what did the Scripture say? He loved him very much. Because that rich young ruler wanted to serve God. But what was the sin holding that rich young ruler back? Materialism. So what did Jesus tell him to do? So all you have and follow me. It cut that rich young ruler to the quick. Another man, most righteous man born of man and woman, John the Baptist. What was the stubborn sin in his life? Vanity. Vanity. That's why before... On the eve of his beheadingment, he would send word to Jesus, simply trying to make sure that the disciples that he had raised, that he had said, behold, the Lamb of God, in fact, was the Lamb of God. And that's why he cried out, God, might you increase, and that might I what? Decrease. He battled that. The crowds followed him, and now he would send them on to another we don't think about those pieces. We don't think, oftentimes we think about the people of God in the, old, in the Old and New Testaments. We think, wow, they had it all together. No, they didn't. They had stubborn sins as well in their life. And God gives us a cure for that. He gives us a plan. So first we humble ourselves. Then we confess. We pray. And then the third step. Oftentimes is the one that goes most neglected. Seek. What does it mean 
to seek. When you and I think of the word seek, what normally comes to mind is this idea of searching. Searching for something. Leaning forward. But the word seek has a very important preposition. Something that lies ahead of seeking. That is the movement. It is the planning. How many of you ever played hide-and-go-seek when you were a kid? Right? Hide-and-go-seek? Yeah. I was all over that. You know, we had... We'd do it for the whole block, you know, and we'd say, okay, you can't cross over these streets. You always had your rogue ones, the rebellious kids. They always, you know, went outside the boundaries, and they'd say, no one found me. Well, yeah, you were two blocks away, dude, you know, you were somewhere else. You were another zip code, you know. You weren't part of the game. So, you know, you create your boundaries, and then someone is deemed it, right? You're it, whatever that means. So you're it. And so now what do you do? You are tasked to close your eyes, not peek, and you count. And, of course, everybody's worried about your counting. You know, if they know you're a fast counter, it's 1 to 100. If you're a slow counter, they might make it 1 to 20. But, you know, you know how it is. They give you, okay, you count to 20, and you can go after everybody. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You know, and you start racing, you know, because why? You won't open your eyes. You won't go chase everybody down. But when you go after the people and you're seeking those who are the best seekers have a plan. They have a plan. They know where they're going to go in the order in which they're going to do it so they can find everyone. If you don't have a plan, you may not find anyone. Or you might find a few, but you don't find everyone. You make a plan. That's the notion with seeking. When the scripture says, seek you first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you, that's the concept, seeking. How many of us have made a plan for our own spiritual life? Don't raise your hands. There may not be any. How many of us have made a plan for our spiritual life? Well, Dennis, um, I go to church on Sundays. Um, I pray before I eat. I pray before I go to bed. I read my Bible usually once a day. There's my plan. That's routine maintenance. That's, that's everyday stuff. What's the plan? See, we oftentimes say, I'm not growing in the Lord. Do you have a plan? I'm not growing in the Lord. You know, you don't have a plan. You've not made a plan. That's the seeking component. That's the peace. When God is speaking to Solomon and he says, humble yourself, turn your eyes outward, pray, begin to confess where you're coming up weak. Seek, now make the plan. Many of us, if we're over the age of 50, have some sort of loose plan, it might be on a napkin, about how we're going to retire or hope to retire. Some of us, if we're under the age of 30, might have a plan about how we're going to progress in our careers. Others might have a, a, a plan on how they're going to progress in their education. We have a plan. But again, the question occurs, do I have a plan for my spiritual development? Do I have a plan? I'll give you a couple of examples of this, of how this is lived out. Let's say I have a problem with vulgar language. And when I'm in a really bad situation or I'm quarreling with somebody... A word that ought not come out of my mouth comes out of my mouth. 
And maybe that's been because I was raised in a home where there were fits of anger. Maybe I was uh, around people when I was young where curse words were very frequent. They couldn't say a sentence without one. Some of you can relate to those pieces, right? And so now, you as an individual are dealing with that baggage. But now, those words become a stubborn sin. You can't seem to get rid of it. And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll say, I'm just going to try harder. Well, what does the scripture say? Well, let me take you on a journey here. What does the scripture say about when something even comes to mind? Do I have to do the act for it to be deemed in God's eyes as a sinful act? No. Because even if I start to dwell on something... Jesus uses the term, and it was sexual immorality. Even if I begin to lust after something, the act of sin has already occurred. It's taken over control of my mind. In other words, it's taken me captive. That's how all forms of those types of stubborn sins seem to be. And so when I'm journeying along, I may get to the point in my own walk in my, in my faith that, yes, maybe in those moments I'm able to hold my tongue But in my mind, the words remain. In my mind, the hatred is there. In the mind, I want to say what I want to say. It still has me captive. You see, that's where I'm trying to be a Christian, and I'm not really letting God live through me. I've not been delivered. I'm still captive. This is where I make the plan. So how do I get past those types of things? Making the plan. The plan requires two different notions, which deals now with our last step, which is the turning. And my people who are called by my name, humble, if my, when my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek and turn. These are all commands, by the way. You can use the term, they're imperatives. This is what we are to do. The turning. So here I am. And I'm in captive, I'm, I'm held captive by the stubborn sin. I get to the point where maybe I'm not saying those words, but they're still in me. This is where many Christians get to. And what they don't do is they don't make the turn. They don't turn because now I have a plan and begin to go the way in which I'm supposed to go. So that no longer do those words even come across my mind. Why? Because I'm not trying to be a Christian. I am. I'm not trying to do what's right. I do what's right. Because God, in a greater measure, is working through me. And I have now been delivered from that stubborn sin. Let me give you an example of how one might handle vulgar language. If I'm bound with vulgar language, one of the worst things I can do is put myself in situations where vulgar language is being used. So, you know, watching a TV show, watching a movie, or reading literature that has vulgar language is not going to help me. Now, this is not about you being, this is about us, you and I, recognizing where we're weak. And where I'm weak There's no reason to put myself in situations in which I'm going to now exacerbate that weakness. That's what gets us into trouble. See, this is what happens. The believer says, I say, Lord, I am so sorry. I know I had a fight 
with my children and I said words I shouldn't have said, God, please deliver me. And then where I am, I'm watching garbage. See, and the Satan's going, yeah, yeah, ping pong ball, tennis match. You just keep coming back my way. You know, you get away for a while and back you are because I've got you on a tether. And that's what happens. And back we go again. Paul tells Timothy to do what when he, sees sin, when he has those sinful impulses? What? Flee. Yeah, run. <laughs> I mean, it's run. Run as fast as you can away from those pieces. Instead of running to them, we run away from them. But that's not the only part we're to do. See, that's the, that's the don't component. Then there's the do component. What is it that I should be doing to see transformation occur in my life? See, the don't is half. It's only half. It's not the whole. The other half of it is what I need to be doing. If I knew I had problems with my language, one of the things I would definitely make sure I would do would be reading Scripture aloud every day on passages of Scripture that speak about communication. The book of James comes to mind. The book of Proverbs comes to mind. The book of Ephesians comes to mind, very much so, about how I can handle language. First Peter and Second Peter, excellent books. Those are Scriptures that I would read aloud every day. And that would be my plan to grow. Now, how long does it take to make a habit that's good get in place and root out a bad habit, root out the thing that doesn't belong? It takes, we know, in social sciences, about 45 days. That's just about seven weeks. That's why this is a summer to remember. It would take, if I began today, close to but not quite to the end of July, where every day I'm engaging in the right activities that will help root out that thing that doesn't belong so that I can become more and more usable in the hands of God. What happens with many believers is we, we engage in the don't for a little while, but we don't really engage in the do. That's the plan. What is it that God wants me to do? I mentioned scriptures read, being read aloud. Why do I say that? Because the word of God is what? It's the word, right? When, G, when God created the earth, what did he do? Did he think it into existence? No, he spoke it. When Jesus, before he was taken up and he was going to give the comforter, what did he do to the disciples? What did he do to them? He breathed on them. Breathed on them. There's so much power in the word of God. And many of us, what we do when we read the Bible is we do this. Honey, what are you doing? I'm reading the Bible. The person has to ask because they can't hear us reading because we're reading, right? We're not reading out loud. The word of God was always meant to be read aloud. The pastor a little while ago spoke about Nehemiah and the tower being built. Remember the wall? Um, excuse me, the wall being built around Jerusalem, rebuilding of it. What did Ezra the scribe do when they had finished he gathered all the people together and he read aloud the word of God. He read it aloud for them all to hear it. Because when I read the word of God aloud, I see it, I say it, and I hear it. When I read it to myself, I'm just seeing it. And what we know with reading is when the average person reads, you, get, you retain about 10 to 15%. That's about it. But if I can see it, I can say it and I can hear it, I run closer to 80% of retention. That's amazing. By just opening our mouths. 
Just opening our mouths and uttering the word of God. Each of you has been given a handout. That handout has a list of some of the, not only, it's not exhaustive at all. It is some of the, it's a list of some of the most common areas that we as believers struggle in. Whether I'm a believer, and if I'm outside of the faith, this is a good time for us, for a person to say, God, I need to give my life over to you. But these are areas that we, oftentimes as believers, we struggle in. A passage was shared earlier today. The passage was out of Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. We spoke at length on Wednesday night about this passage. What does that mean? Why does Jesus say that? Is that heresy? He's talking about somehow being violent? No. But let me tell you, the enemy is a roaring lion. He has no interest, none whatsoever, in you ever, ever, ever being liberated from stubborn sin. Ever. I assure you. I can stand before you and I can say that a thousand times over and every time it would be a correct statement. He has no interest in you ever being liberated. None. Because that's how he keeps us under his thumb. And when Solomon had finished building that temple, God told him, difficulties will arise. And when those difficulties arise, when you want liberation, when you want freedom, you humble yourself, you pray, you seek, and then what? Then you turn. You turn. And when those things occur, something miraculous happens. We see that in the final couple of verses when God says, Then I will hear from heaven. That's a promise, by the way. You can underline that. That's a promise. Then I will hear from heaven. And what? And I will, again, a promise, forgive their sin. And the third promise, and I will heal their land. I will bring them redemption, I will bring them restoration. I will make them whole. The reason many times we don't receive a deliverance is because, as Jesus declares in the book of Matthew, we don't recognize that it is an intentionality. It is an assertiveness. It is a a violent activity. Why? Because there is opposition. There is always opposition. Anything worth having, there's going to be opposition. So as we look at that list, this is my challenge for you this this afternoon. I want you to look at that list. And your challenge won't be finding one. Your challenge will be limiting your choices to one. I mentioned materialism earlier. If I was going to work on materialism, one of the first things that I would start doing... I would make sure I'm tithing, and I would make sure I'm giving to missions, and I'd be looking for every opportunity in which I can give. Because why? I need to show, I need to, show to self that money is not an end. It's a tool and a resource for God to bless his people and to further the kingdom of God. It transforms how I think about it. If my problem 
it's like we saw with pride. I'd be working on humility. I'd be looking to find every opportunity I have to do the type of work that brings no, no level of adoration or attention to self. It's all about other people. It's all about other people. You see, that's transforming and thinking about what it is that I need to get on a spiritual path so that I can get these types of issues behind me that keep becoming anchors and pestilence to my life. I've been a believer for 40 years. And I met people of all different levels of walks of faith. Those who have been believers for one week to those who have been believers for 60 and 70 years. This has no age limitation. It doesn't care about your occupation. It doesn't care about your gender. It doesn't matter about your eth- ethnicity. It doesn't matter. It's a human condition. So what I'm going to ask you to do today is take the time now. Pull out that handout. Circle the area, one, to make it a summer to remember. Mark down two action steps, something that you need to stop doing, something that you need to start doing. Now, what I would really encourage you to make sure what you start doing, at least as one issue, is praying the word of God aloud and scriptures that deal with the issue that you're trying to work through, the matter you're trying to work through. Take time to think this through. This is a plan. And then what you're going to do is you're, going to hang, you're not going to hang on to that list. At the end of this service, you're going to take that, that piece of paper. You're going to walk out these doors, and you're going to burn it. You might say, why is that? When you saw the Old Testament, and they would take the sacrificial animals, and they would take them, and they would burn them, what did God say? It was a sweet aroma, wasn't it? It was that element of us, you and I, taking our faith and putting it into action and saying, God, it's no one else's business, but I need deliverance on this, and I've made a plan. Now help me carry forward on that plan. This is stuff that you and I as believers are not used to. This is what we want. We want to come to church. We want to have something we enjoy. We want to walk out, go have dinner, go do life, and not worry about us having to think about what it is that maybe I need to do. Well, this is that Sunday, my friend. God smiled on you today. He loves you. He wants you to be free. I'm going to have the praise team lead us in a song for just a few moments. I'm going to ask you to take the time now. Work on that sheet. Select that area. Write those action steps. In about two minutes, I'll share with you again on what we're going to do as we close this service.
we look over that list, envy, Peter, materialism, rich young ruler, pride, Moses, sexual deviance, David, vanity, John the, Baps, Bapt, John the Baptist. Lord, the word of God is very clear that when we humble ourselves, pray, seek, and turn, you hear our prayers, you forgive our sins, and you heal us. We ask for your healing today. We ask, Lord, that in fact this would be a summer to remember that we'll be able to look back and say, in the summer of 2015, God delivered me from this issue, and now I am all the much better for it because now God uses me in even greater ways in his awesome hand. I've been freed from that bondage. I've been transformed, and I am a different person. God, help us today. Help us to be bold. Help us to not be timid. Help us to realize it does take an aggressive posture because there's an enemy out there, and he kills, and he steals, and he destroys. That's what he does, because that's what he is. He is no friend. Today, he might tell us that, oh, we got it all together. These issues, there's nothing going on in our life. We got it all together. And we're just lying to ourselves. Help us, Lord, to see us as you see us.
Help us to see us, Lord, as you want to see us. Help us to be more than overcomers today through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. Bless these men and women. Bless them, Lord, for their tenacity. Bless them, Lord, for their courage. Lord, as you spoke to Joshua through the servant Moses, that he was to be bold and courageous because there's always giants in the land. But when you give us that land, you give us the power, you'll give us the equipping, and you'll give us the strength. I ask for your equipping, your power, and your goodness, and your mighty hand to rest upon these men and women as they're faithful to you because you will always be faithful to us. Help us to go forward today as different people determined to not allow the enemy to keep us captive any longer, but to live as people who are free because God has made us free indeed. Thank you, mighty God. Again, if you need some time at the altars, the altars are open. When you do depart the building, please make sure you visit the place where the fire is burning and you drop that piece of paper in there and you say, praise God, and you go forward in freedom, and go forward with that plan, and you live that plan out. You live it out daily. You live it out. By the end of the July, you will have a new habit in your life, a God-honoring habit, and it will be indeed a summer to remember for many, many reasons. Again, Lord Jesus, bless these men and women. May they seek you, seek you, In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night for an encounter service. Again, the altars are open. If you need prayer or would like to have someone pray with you, remember to burn that note and give God the glory. God bless you.